0: So, um, the next, uh, the next uh, part of the program is one that we love uh, uh, because it allows us to kind of bounce questions off the audience and to bounce, for you to bounce questions off a panel of of experts and we have uh, a a great group of faculty members for this this, uh, cases discussion. And it will be chaired by Raj Gandhi. Uh, Raj is uh, at Harvard at uh, Mass General Hospital, uh, where he's a professor of medicine. And uh, sort of by the way, and not by the way, uh, Raj chaired the uh, IASUSA uh, HIV treatment guidelines that were published just recently uh, in JAMA. So Raj is ideally able to take us through this. Raj, and you'll introduce the panel.
1: I will do that. Thank you very much. Um, It's really a pleasure to be here and to see you all. We're going to go through a number of challenging cases in HIV. I'm really um, thrilled to have a distinguished panel here with me today. I'm going to introduce them starting on your left with Dr. Levison, who's at the Baylor College of Medicine, Uh, Dr. Carlos Del Rio at Emory University, Uh, Dr. Connie Benson at University of California, San Diego, Dr. Mike Sag at University of Alabama-Birmingham and last but certainly not least, Dr. Judy Kerr, who you've met before from UCLA. So we're going to go through at a fairly um, reasonable pace a number of cases. Um, Here are my financial relationships and here are some of the learning objectives, although there will be a number of cases that will go even beyond these particular learning objectives. We're going to try to do about seven cases if we get to them and a bonus case if there's time. But we're gonna start, though, with a very special case. And this is a case, and I'm just going to make sure um, that um, all are uh, looking at this case. A distinguished man sees you in clinic with the following history. This man grew up in Rochester, Minnesota. His bedroom window oversaw the Mayo Clinic. He received his MD from the University of Minnesota and did medical residency at the University of Utah, so you will be asking him some questions about skiing. He trained in medical oncology at UCSF at the dawn of the HIV epidemic and conducted groundbreaking work on Kaposi's sarcoma and, any, and other complications of AIDS. He was a pioneer in establishing the collaborative team-based approach to HIV care, and he has two numerous to count leadership positions, including the head of the Center for AIDS Research, Chief of Medical Service at the San Francisco VA Medical Center, Director of the UCSF AIDS Research Institute, and a founding board chair of IAS-USA. So for our panel, um, what is the differential diagnosis and what is your evaluation? And so I will start with uh, Dr. Courier. Oh, I get to go first.
0: Wow, what a pleasure. So I also grew up in Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, fun fact. And uh, throughout my career, I've had the really great honor of, of knowing Dr. Goldberg having him as a mentor, and a friend, and a brother. Um, As I started to get involved in HIV, um, my mother would say, do you know that Dr. Bolberning? I was reading about him in the paper, and you know, his farm is right up there, their barn is over there. Anyway, I finally got to meet the famous Dr. Bolberning, and he's been really a tremendous role model, and inspiration for me throughout my career, and we're so lucky to have his wisdom in the IAS USA and it's its also uh, really looking forward to see what he's going to do next uh, in the next chapter. So uh, just congratulations, Paul, on all of your success and thank you for all you've done for this organization and for all of us.
1: Dr. Sad
2: So I've, uh, I have one quick thing to say uh, and then one quick story. The quick thing to say is that uh, UCSF, under Paul's leadership, developed the first HIV dedicated outpatient clinic in the world. When I was a fellow, I went and spent a day there in our 1917 clinic in Birmingham is based on a model of their clinic, but basically I went around and asked one question. If you were starting over, how would you design your clinic and just took their best practices and tried to implement it? Uh, the story I'll tell I think says everything about Paul, that when I was a fellow before that trip, um, The international AIDS meeting was in Stockholm and we're flying through Frankfurt, Germany and I get off the plane and Paul and Merle Sandy had just published a a Saunders uh, update on HIV and I had it in my briefcase. And then I look across the way and I see this guy. I said, I think that's Paul Volberding. So I walked over and he signed the book. But more importantly, when we got off the plane in Stockholm, um, I was by myself, I didn't have anything. He waited for me and took me in the car that came to pick him up and took me into downtown uh, uh, Stockholm so I thought that was that just speaks volumes of the type of person that Paul is in everything that he does
3: so I I don't know exactly how to describe the differential diagnosis (laughs) but I think we're getting there Um, one of a kind (laughs) one of a kind Um, (laughs) There's only one thing in the differential diagnosis, (laughs) right? right? Uh, But I first met Paul at an interesting meeting that was um, a lot of us have in common. It was in San Francisco, and it was the first. I got invited to go by, just after I finished my fellowship, by Harold Kessler, who was an early member of the board of directors for IAS USA because Harold couldn't go. and I was supposed to do his talk, and Paul was doing, it was a symposium very similar to this, but being run by um, Howard Reese and the World Health Communications Group, which I think was one of the ones that Paul decided we needed to do something more independent of that, which led to the establishment of IES USA. So it was a long time ago in the early days of hiv Um, paul was also the chair of actg 019 and i worked closely with uh, him and several of the other protocol chairs and and investigators on that study early in the early days of the aids clinical trials group network and paul's commitment to the disease his commitment to science his commitment to fairness and sanity in doing clinical trials has not changed in all that period of time so i think uh, his contributions are too numerous to count and that's my evaluation but all i can say is that i've valued paul as a colleague a friend a collaborator for many many years now and while i think it's important for people to move on to new stages in their life and new new uh Horizons and challenges and things to do with their careers. Um, we will miss him terribly. Being part of courses like this, and being part of the leadership of the IES USA. So just thank you, Paul, for all of your contributions and and all of your friendship and and uh, leadership over the years.
4: So one one thing that that I think Paul taught us early in, in the early years of the HIV epidemic, when many in the infectious uh, community really had little interest on in this disease. Paul, a trained oncologist, because of the connection with Capsis, but he could have said, I'm just gonna deal with the cancer part, but he really understood what, what was behind and what needed to be done for this actual, for this disease, which was an infectious disease. And he, he became one of the leaders in HIV without being a trained in infectious disease. And that, I think, opened the door for many other specialties to do that, and there are many people like Melanie Thompson, who's an internist, and other people who became family me- practice medicine, and other people who became experts in HIV. And I'll tell you, even, even today, I think, you know, there are many of my ID colleagues that I will not let them close to an HIV patient, and, <laughs> because they simply have no interest or no training or no understanding of this. Uh, Paul was always in, in the forefront and always thinking ahead, and I think he reminds me of that, you know, famous when uh anecdote, you know, it's not where the puck is. He goes where the puck is going to be. He goes where the future <laughs> is going to be. And, in fact, uh, the, uh, so when I think about, you know, a man from, from Minnesota and a, uh, and his life and what he's done, you know, you were saying skiing, but I, I'm thinking more hockey player here. Uh, <laughs> and I think that would be in my, way well, I think that's what I would th- be thinking, that he's a, he's a tremendous hockey player. Uh, my personal knowledge of Paul is, uh, has goes back many, many years. Both Paul and his wife, uh, Molly, have been fantastic friends, uh, uh, mentors, colleagues. And many years ago, when I was thinking about writing in 1998, a grant for a Center for AIDS Research at Emory and had no idea what to do, I said, I'm going to call the best CIFAR I know, and the best CIFAR I know was San Francisco, and Paul was incredibly grateful with his time. let me use his application to read over it and to see what they were doing. And really, I mean, it was, it was thanks to that, you know, sort of one-on-one mentoring that, that I was able to put an application together that was successful. So uh, I, I, I have a lot of respect for Paul as a, as a scientist, as a, uh, uh, but I have even more respect for him as, as a human being and as a, as a friend. So uh, good luck in your next phase of your career, Paul, but I think it's going to be hockey. <laughs> <laughs>
5: And I'm a relatively new participant in IAS USA, but Dr. Bolberding's name has been just intertwined in so many things that I've read along the way, heard along the way. And um, last night as I walked into dinner, um, a man I hadn't met before came up to me and said, hi, I'm Paul. And I think that seems to say a lot about who he is and just watching him in action in the the last um, 18 hours yeah, seems like a really great guy.
1: Um, I know that, um, I don't know if Donna or Hyman wants to say something, Dr. Scott or Donna, and then we'll uh, go on to our our other cases after this inaugural one. Uh, Dr. Scott?
0: Not and I've known Paul since I was a resident, where's Paul, since I was a resident uh, at the VA. Uh, and I think selfless really comes to mind as a, I remember uh, he was my attending and uh, we had a issue with PT that we raised in one of the meetings and then I came back and talked to him later and he'd actually like, gone down to the TP uh, PT wing and tried to talk to the physical therapist without success and um, had some very choice words which are the same words I would have used um, and so you know he's been a selfless mentor he's one of the reasons I stayed in San Francisco um, he's been tremendously giving in his time and his energy his his um, his guidance um, and tremendous and open opportunities for early stage investigators, young uh, early career uh, clinicians. And so I couldn't speak more highly of Paul as a person, as a mentor, uh, and as a scientist.
6: Hi everyone, I'm Donna Jacobson, Executive Director of the ISUSA and long-term friend of Paul Wilberding. And this is gonna be tough. Um, I'll be short, because I have the last word. Uh, Paul and I have known each other for about 37 years now, I think. Um, and he came with, up with the idea of doing something important and special with the ISUSA at that time. And for these 37 years, he's been my friend, my mentor, and my guide star in this organization. And I'm not going to miss you because you're not going anywhere <laughs> far away. Um, but in, in uh, preparing for this sort of celebration of Paul, we asked, Two or three hundred of his closest friends to tell us what. What do you think of when you think of Paul Volberding in our in our word cloud? And so, actually, unfortunately, he was copied on the email asking for the word <laughs> cloud. So the first words he was the first one to respond, and he said, "Tall, dark, and handsome." <laughs> <laughs> um, but as the words starting started to come in from these hundreds of people, the first few really stood out um, as the most. Um, often referred to words about Paul, and I think this really captures it kind, innovative, look at ISUSA 31 years later, leader, smart, and thoughtful. Those were the first that were coming in. And then as the hundreds of words continued to pour in, Paul, this is what your colleagues think of you as a human being. Um, (laughs) the, The larger the word, the more times it came up. Uh, My am all these words and you see that leader, visionary, kind, thoughtful, committed are the words that really to other people represent you. And I think this is so true. There are a lot of words that came out, you know, in the smaller type because they came one or two times, well tanned, you know, (laughs) something that came up. But um, I can't thank you enough for everything that you've done in this whole field but also and mostly from my perspective, what you've done to guide this organization for these many years and all the wonderful work we we do and and all the tremendous volunteer hours that you've put into it along with the rest of our board into making this organization work. So I love you and I thank you.
2: (laughs) Uh,
1: I'll just say that the word evaluation has value in it and I think Paul you brought a lot of value to all of us and we value you so much and the word that I would put up there, I did send in my words but I would say courageous. Um, For those who have seen this video that was at IDSA, ID Week some years ago about, I think it had the word lifeboat in it and it talks about, Paul presented that but go back and watch that, that's a really um, demonstration of his courage. So let's go ahead and get started and with gratitude Paul. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're going to highlight a number of cases, and the first case that I want to highlight is a case related to HIV and pregnancy. So this is a 35-year-old woman with HIV. She's receiving Bictegavir FTC TAP. She's virologically suppressed. Her CD4 count is 500. On a routine visit, she mentions that she's missed her last menstrual period, her pregnancy test is positive, and she's at the end of her first trimester. So we're going to give your cell phones a workout here, and let's see. Do you recommend a change in ART? Go ahead and vote yes. No, or It Depends. If you vote It Depends, we'll, you'll have to tell us what It Depends on. But go ahead and vote. What I'm going to do is I'm going to see what the audience thinks. I'm going to put up one other question, and then I'm going to get my panel's comments on both of the two questions. So One is, do you recommend a change in ART? I see that 30-something have voted. Let's get a few more. This is what Mike Sag usually calls the song, names that too. <laughs> So it looks like about two-thirds would like to stay the course. Um, A quarter would like to change. Okay, I'm going to put one more question, and then we're going to see what our panel thinks. So now this uh, person is at the end of her pregnancy. She's remained virologically suppressed on the same regimen. She did stay on that regimen. And she's now at the end of her third trimester. And now the question is, she expresses a strong desire to breastfeed her infant. What do you counsel her? So let's go ahead and vote. You can start voting now if you'd like. A... The risk of HIV transmission if she's virologically suppressed is less than, is about 5%. B, the risk of HIV transmission if she's virologically suppressed is very low, less than 1%, but not zero. C, she should formula feed instead. Let's see what your thoughts are. And I will say... Some of what we're this case, and what people are voting, I see it looks like 50-something voted. Um, this was not as much of a focus at CROI, but there was a very special session devoted to some recent ART guidelines. Dr. Levison is on that panel, and that was a particular highlight for me, of course. So let's see what people think. Um, let's see, can someone advance? Oops. There we go, okay. So, um, most of you, um, that's nice, it shuffled it. So, it's uh, uh, 77% think that the risk is very low, a uh, few percent uh, say um, five, that the risk is 5%, and, and about 20% say 4 feet. So, I actually, this one, I want to go in reverse order. Why don't we ask Dr. Levison, who's one of the authors of the guidelines, if she will comment on the, on the infant feeding question, um, and then we'll see our panel's thoughts on ARVs. So, Dr. Levison.
5: I'm actually gonna answer that during my talk.
1: Okay. Um,
5: which is immediately following this. Yes. But if you want me to, go to give an answer, um, I will. I'd
1: like you to give the top line and then go into detail during your talk.
5: Okay. Um, yes, I agree with the majority. And um, I'll give you some of the details during the talk. And w- the big change in the guidelines is a shared decision-making uh, perspective which is rather than a you should formula feed.
1: Okay, so it sounds like we're gonna hear more. Um, what about ART? If I could ask one of the other panel members, this woman is, this person's on um, the FTC Taft. What would you do with that? Um, Dr. Perrier.
0: Um, Thanks. Well, um, first of all, I think one key thing that this case brings up is preconception counseling which is really important if you have a woman in your practice who are considering to discuss, you know, are you considering having children and to talk about these things ahead of time um, so that you're not finding yourself with the person who's pregnant then having to decide whether to change. I would probably leave, the, um, leave her on this treatment because it's working. It's one of the treatments that we don't have as much information about. And so that's always a question about whether to switch to something that we know more about, like Daly um, which, uh, and I don't know her, her history, um, but which is considered safe in pregnancy, um, or to continue on what she's on. And I think preconception counseling would also allow you to start discussions about. Her infant feeding um, issues earlier so that you're not at the third trimester (laughs) dealing with it. So, a plug for preconception counseling, and I'd continue the treatment she's on.
1: Terrific. Um.
4: Raj, the only thing I I would add is that, you know, if she wasn't, when uh, when Judy talked about preconception counseling, I was thinking about a woman who's not HIV. uh, who's HIV negative, but who is at risk of HIV, and there was recently a study published looking at, uh, can you give them PrEP, and is there an impact of adverse outcomes of pregnancy or, or in the baby of doing that? And the answer is basically no. So again, we need to think in that preconception counseling of women at risk of HIV that we don't want them to get HIV during pregnancy, which is a high, period of high risk of acquiring HIV infection.
1: Terrific. I think we might hear more about that from Dr. Scott, who's going to be talking about PrEP, but definitely stay tuned, and that's an important message for sure. So I wanted to bring this case for a couple of reasons. One is to um, get the pulse of where people are at with this, but also to highlight some of the recent changes in the guidelines. So the um, DHHS guidelines in the late January put out some, some new recommendations, and I wanted to make a few points here. Um, they now put integrase, uh, dolutegravir as the preferred integrase inhibitor, and that's based on reassuring data from Sitamo and other studies uh, on the lack of an effect on neural t- tube defects, or uh, a protease inhibitor ritonavir boosted darunavir. And I stress the word ritonavir boosted durunivir, with two nucleosides. So still three drug therapy for women during uh, for people during pregnancy, and the nucleosides are listed there. Um, and Raj? What they say.
5: I just want to make a point related to that. It's the what to start in pregnancy. This is for naive patients. Correct, yes, yes. And I really want to emphasize that because the category of what you come in on, if you come in on something, we generally say please stay on because changing often disrupts viral suppression.
1: And that's a very good point. This is when people are initiating therapy. I'm going to mention some of the major changes in just a moment. Dr. Currier already mentioned insufficient data currently for bactegavir and verduravirine. The ones that they're clearest on not recommending or they're recommending against are all of the cobacistab-boosted um, regimens based on PK concerns. Right now, initiating long-acting cabotegravir is not recommended, and the initiating two drug therapies, the ones listed here, is also not recommended. The IAS USA um, put out their guidelines, um, which are largely concordant, but the IAS USA in December 2022 highlighted tegovir plus TAF FTC is a preferred regimen in, in people uh, initiating therapy, and that's largely based on a very important, I would say, transformative study called IMPACT-2010. The main results of IMPACT-2010, this was a study done in women, mostly in Africa, who were um, in their second and third trimester, and these individuals were randomized to either get dolutegravir FTC TAF, dolutegravir FTC TDF, or what we used to use in the past, Efabren's the FTC TDF, and essentially, um, adverse pregnancy outcomes were lowest in the uh, individuals who received dolutegravir plus FTC-TAF. And if you look at infant outcomes, what you're seeing in the graphic is rates of infant stunting. The dolutegravir regimens did better than the efavirenz regimens. So this has led to a couple of major changes in the DHHS guidelines that have now put raltegravir and boosted atazanavir as alternatives to the preferred. And as um, Dr. Levison was just saying, in if a person is on a regimen with insufficient data, you have two options, really. One is to continue the regimen, um, but do a frequent viral load monitoring, or have a discussion around some of the recommended, recommended regimens. I, what I won't go through is the infant feeding changes. You're gonna hear more about that, but this is really an important, I would say, advance in terms of counseling. The formula eliminates HIV transmission. Viral suppression on ART decreases suppression to less than 1%, but not zero, as I think most of you said and that individuals who choose to, breast, to, um, to um, breastfeed or formula feed, either one should be supported in their decision if they're virologically suppressed. The last point, which I'm sure Dr. Levison will stress, is there have been instances where child protective services have been engaged, and this is uh, completely inappropriate, and I'm sure she's going to talk about that. Okay, let's go on to case number two. So now we're going to go over to a 45-year-old man who has a family history of um, CAD? He's got um, a history of diagnosed, he was diagnosed with HIV about nine years, ago, actually, sorry, 19 years ago in 2004. <laughs> um, between 2004 and 2009, he was essentially an elite controller. His viral load was over 1,000, I'm sorry, his viral load was less than 50, his CD4 count was over 1,000. Now, starting in 2009, he developed some intermittent um, bouts of viremia, viral loads that fluctuated between 50 to 200, and in 2019, when I was seeing him, his viral load was 150, his CD4 count was 510, and his CD4 to CD8 ratio was 0.8, so let's see what you all think in terms of, would you recommend to this person, you're seeing him now with the numbers there, would you recommend that he start ART, Um, yes? Uh, recommend that he not start ART, no. And let's go ahead and start the polling, if you would. Um, see only if the CD4 camp declines to below 200, it's 510 when you see him, or his viral load is above 200, or you're not sure. So let's see what you all think. Obviously, over the years, um, we've gone to a treat-all approach for for most instances. But this is, I think, the one instance where people still have discussions around whether we should be treating HIV controllers or elite controllers. So I'm interested in what people what people would do. So let me. Okay, so almost 90% of you would say yes. Let's see what our panel thinks, Dr. Sack.
2: I agree with the audience. Um, there's a lot of subtlety here, but it, First off, it's hard to call somebody an elite controller if their virus becomes detectable above 50. So that's point one. But I think what we tend to overlook is that how is the viral load being suppressed? And the answer is it's the immune system managing it. And that takes energy and effort over time. And what we don't know but are concerned about is how much does that inflammation associated with the control of the viremia, ultimately lead down the road to more of the complications that we're we'll talk about a lot. We'll hear about later today, from antiretroviral—not sorry—from from HIV itself, even when people are on antiretroviral therapy. So, all things being equal, uh, I would lean towards starting therapy. I wouldn't bang my fist on the table or turn them over to child protective services. But I think the point is that that it really would be strongly encouraged to stop that de novo replication. An important point of the case is that the CD4, CD8 ratio is 0.8. That's not terribly bad. Uh, When it gets below 0.5, I think there's a lot of evidence that there's complications. Um, But at 0.8, it's kind of in a gray zone. But just putting it together biologically, I would treat. Any dissenting opinions?
4: No, I don't think it's a dissenting opinion. I mean, I agree with Mike, but but I think the point I'll make is that there's no uh, uh, randomized trial in telling us what to do. And, uh, and, and the reason is, you know, ACTG tried to do a randomized trial, and at least my experience in people who... Uh, we thought could be enrolled in the study uh, down in Atlanta, who we got referred when they went back to talk to their physicians, their physicians said, "Oh no no don't you, you don 't need to be treated so you know we, we sort of prevented ourselves from doing what we needed to do, which was really have better evidence of this. Having said that when I meet with with people like this I'm like this in, this individual first of all, I agree that i 'm not sure I would call this person a total elite controller he 's a slow controller or a slow progressor or whatever but I tend to tell them that what I would do if I was in that situation, what I would do in that situation based on the available drugs that we have today which are well tolerated, I would take therapy.
1: Um, I will say the START study looked at, um, the START study was a study that showed that we should be treating regardless of CD4 count. They did an analysis of people whose CD4 count was less than 3,000, not elite controllers but controllers let's say. And they couldn't demonstrate a a clinical benefit because the event rate was low, but I would also treat based on theoretic reasons, and I'm going to show you some of the the, what I would call benefits of uh, theoretic benefits of treatment. So so I would agree with you all. And I want to start by emphasizing that people like this, their immune system is working overtime essentially um, to control the virus, as Dr. Sag said. I'm just going to make two points here. People who are controllers have higher T cell activation than people who are on ART, so I think that's one very important point. And as you're going to hear from Dr. Grinspoon, there is a clear link between inflammation and coronary plaque, coronary artery disease. And there, are, there is evidence that elite controllers have more coronary plaque than people with HIV who are on ART or people who are without HIV. Um, the study that the ACTG did do on, on treating controllers, not elite controllers only, but controllers, people whose viral load was less than 1,000 is shown here. 35 such individuals of whom about a third were consistently less than um, 50 elite controllers. I will parenthetically say that Steve Deeks from San Francisco uh, says it's an East Coast thing to call these people elite because he's so anti-elitist that he calls them, (laughs) you know, it's an East Coast thing. But um, uh, HIV controllers were treated with ropivirin FTC-TDF. Viral loads, if you look with research assays at elite controllers, many of them have low level viremia below 50 copies and the viral loads went down, the residual viremia went down when you started ART, not, not surprisingly. But I think more importantly, the CD8 T cell activation went down, and there was decreased markers of immune activation. So, I would agree with what the, the panel says. The the uh, DHHS guidelines largely say don't. If you have a newly diagnosed person, don't wait to see if they become an elite controller. That's a strong recommendation. Start them during their acute HIV. Start them, of course, if they have progression of their CD4 counts. Some individuals will lose um, control over time, or they'll have the dwindles on their CD4 cells and they comment on the theoretic rationale. My own approach is to essentially um, look at their uh, CD4 count, look at their CD8 count. If they have a decreased ratio, I would say they're probably more active as an elite controller. If they have an elevated CRP, if they have intermittently elevated viral loads like this patient did, uh, then I I would certainly treat those people citing a theoretic rationale. One thing that is not controversial at all, though, is to monitor them if they don't go on therapy. Um, Joe Aron tells the story of a person who was an elite controller for many years, stopped uh, engaging with um, clinical care and eventually developed pneumocystis and actually died um, because of the loss of elite control. So people can progress and monitoring is is really key. I'm just looking around to see if there's any uh, comments from the audience or Dr. Benson?
3: I agree with what everyone else has said. But I would take that a little further. I work in San Diego where the HIV Neurobehavioral Research Program is housed. And they have data on elite controllers doing serial um, neurologic testing over time in people who are treated and untreated. And um, you can show very clear association with these inflammatory markers and neurologic abnormalities in neurologic function that are subtle but continue to accrue over time in elite controllers and sometimes I worry more about the neurologic complications even than the cardiovascular ones obviously we have some things we can do to prevent cardiovascular disease but once you start down that pathway of neurologic deterioration it's very hard to intervene and turn the turn the car around so I'm worry a little bit more about that.
1: That's a good point. Great. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to shift gears again, and now we're going to talk about drug-resistant HIV. So this is a, um, and I will say as we start this case, I think in the last five years there's really been a a revolution in our our understanding of drug resistance, and we'll try to illustrate that. So this is a 50-year-old man with HIV. He's been treated with a variety of regimens in the 1990s. When you see him, he has resistance to the nucleosides. He has two Uh, Nucleoside RT inhibitor mutations, M41L and M184V, the latter being quite common. And he has resistance to the NNRTI, the famous K103N. He's been suppressed for years on a combination of TAF FTC, L-Vitagravir, COBE, that's one pill, and darunavir. But um, you would like to change that medication because of drug interactions. And so what regimen would you choose in this person who has some nucleoside resistance, and NNRTI resistance, with the NNRTI resistance being to efavirenz. So would you feel comfortable putting him on TAF, FTC, bigtegravir? Would you recommend that he go on TDF, FTC, boosted darunavir? Would you avoid the nucleosides altogether and do the regimen that we heard about just a little bit ago, um, boosted darunavir plus dolutegravir? Or do you think that he needs... A multi-class regimen with TAF, FTC, rilpivirine, and then an RTI and dolutegravir. Let's see what you all think. No Broadway tunes, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so good. It looks like a, a, a bit of a mix, which is good. About uh, two thirds like the TAF FTC bactegever. Some of you though would go for the nucleoside avoiding nucleoside bearing regimen, and let's see what our panel thinks.
0: <laughs> Dr. Curry. yeah. This is a this is a really great case, I, I think if you look back when this uh, person was put on the it's a boosted integrase inhibitor and darunavir or something, uh, yeah. Back at that time, you know that was. Pretty common to do when people had NRTI and NNRTI an resistance. We were very worried about the vulnerability of integrase inhibitors and felt like it wasn't going to be enough. And for many people, it was going to be like their next big chance, and we didn't want to screw it up. So we kind of did the belt and suspenders approach, and and I think that you know a series of studies over the last few years have really demonstrated that you can have. And 184 v and still not take out your Bictegravir TAF or Dolutegravir TAF FTC combination. So i think been audiences in sync with that, uh, without thinking, but it, it, it definitely was a moment in time where I think those of us who've been doing this for longer had a harder time of saying that's gonna be okay. Um, but I think we have evidence now that it's gonna be okay.
1: Yes, I, I, my own practice has evolved in those last five years. Any other comments? Cause I'll, I'll walk through some of the things that got me to where you all are, which is um, with that point, Dr. Benson.
3: mean, this might be somebody to consider lenacapavir now. Yes. And uh, after what I just talked yeah. about, I think the data have been pretty impressive. And I think it, your choices B, C, and D don't, really absolve you of drug interaction issues, whereas A does, and if you can get away with doing that with monitoring, that would be the simplest regimen to use, and I'd be happy doing that. But he might be somebody I'd consider switching to
1: lenacaprivir. Lenacaprivir with some other drugs, yeah. Um, let's walk through a kind of almost stepwise how we got to where um, we are. So. Um, what are the options for people who have drug resistance? And I'll start with just M184V. These are the data that now support that you can keep someone suppressed with M184V if you switch to Bictegavir FTC-TAF, but it's not unique to Bictegavir FTC-TAF. I think we would get the exact same results with dolutegravir FTC-TAF. So this was pooled trial data from the manufacturer of Bictegavir FTC-TAF and looked at people who were virologically suppressed and they were then switched to Bactegavir FTC-TAP, so they were virologically suppressed on some other regimen. There was 1,800 or so people. About 10% of them, about 180 of them, had M184V. They could either find it on a, on a proviral genotype or they had a historic M184V. And what you're seeing in all those bars, which are all essentially the same, is about 95 98 99% suppression um, whether people did or did not have M184V. So essentially, that's good data. These are good data. And again, I would apply this also to Dalgu Tegivir FTC TAF or or TDF FTC. Um, So let's go one more up. Now we're going to look at people who are suppressed on protease inhibitors. This is a study done in Africa. All these people were suppressed. People in sub Saharan Africa get on a protease inhibitor if they've uh, failed and if they've had virologic failure on an NNRTI. So these people all had virologic suppression on a boosted PI plus two nucleosides, and they were randomized to either continue their boosted PI and two nucleosides or to switch to an integrase inhibitor plus two nucleosides. The integrase inhibitor was dolutegravir. Now, prior drug resistance was not assessed in this study. This study is called 2SD, but one would imagine that there would be a substantial resistance because by the time you have an virologic failure in sub-Saharan Africa, there's often a fair amount of nucleoside resistance. And what you're seeing. And those two bars are high rates of virologic suppression, whether you continue the boosted PI or whether you switch to uh, plus, um plus two nucleosides. And there, there was no resistance that emerged, and that's really important. The next two studies, one is one study that you've just heard of, one is a study that really laid, I think, the groundwork, is now taking people who are not virologically suppressed. The prior two studies suppressed, now they're not virologically suppressed, they're failing an NNRTI, this is a study called NADIA, and they're randomized to get boosted darunavir plus tenofovir um, 3TC, or to get dolutegavir plus tenofovir FT, uh, 3TC. There's also an arm that gets AZT, and I'm going to put that aside because the AZT arm did worse than the group that got tenofovir. Here they had resistance data, and there is a lot of resistance in NADIA, 50% of people had K65R, the mutation that knocks out tenofovir, and almost 85, more than 85% had M184V. What you're seeing in those bars is that there's high rates of virologic suppression with either dolutegravir plus two nucleosides or with boosted darunivir plus two nucleosides. So again, about 90%. And this is even the case when there was a lot of nucleoside resistance. So again, if you've got a high barrier to resistance drug, with tenofir-3-TC, um, you're having high rates of suppression. Now, I will um, put one caveat here. In the people who got boosted darunavir plus tenofovir 3 tc there was no resistance that developed. About 4% of people who got dolutegavir plus two nucleosides plus tenofir-3-TC um, or AZT-3-TC did develop resistance, and I'll come back to that when I draw some lessons. I'm not going to go through this next study because Dr. Courier went through this, but this largely supports, in my mind, the data that we saw from Nadia, similar patient population, that is NNRTI um, biologic failure. In this particular study, though, it extends that to say that boosted durunivir plus dolutegavir, a nucleoside sparing regimen, had high rates of suppression, and, and Dr. Courier went over that as well. So here's what I take from all of these recent trials. If you have a patient whose treatment experienced, who's virologically suppressed, like my patient, you can switch from a boosted PI to dolutegravir or another high barrier to resistance integrase inhibitor, even when you don't have full results of resistance testing, and that was certainly true in the 2SD study in Africa, and, and even where we work, we sometimes don't have all the resistance data. Second, in people who are virologically suppressed and whose virus is sensitive to an integrase inhibitor and a PI, it is reasonable to consider switching to tenofovir and either FTC or 3TC, plus either dolutegavir, bictegavir, or boosted durunovir. These, these are drugs that it's hard for the virus to get resistance to. That is likely to maintain suppression even if you have pre-existing nucleoside resistance like my patient did. And then last, Uh, This is the the, um, kind of the hardest. Now you've got someone with viral failure. They've got viremia. They've got nucleoside resistance. Your options, I think, include a boosted durunivir regimen plus two nucleosides, the nadia regimen, um, dolutegravir plus boosted durunivir. Again, if you're trying to avoid drug interactions, then that that would be not as good. Or dolutegravir plus two nucleosides, although there is a small risk of dolutegravir resistance. Many people will extend this also to include um, uh, Bictegavir FTC TAP, but we have less data on that. So I'm going to pause just for a moment, see if anyone wants to comment. So, so the only thing
4: on the, on the last bullet, I, I go back to what, what uh, Dr. Benson said about lenacapavir right, being an yeah. option. The question I would ask you and ask others in the panel, uh, go back to the first one about switching. How would you feel about to switching that person to uh, long acting cabotegravir? reptilviri?
1: So that's a good question. So the question that we're, uh, is being asked is, this person with K103N, um, would you feel comfortable switching to cabotegravir and ropivirine? So the, the studies that um, got that regimen um, approved are studies done in, in um, people who did not have known um, NNRTI resistance. K- uh, K103N in and of itself should not impact ropivirine but I do worry a little bit myself, that if I have a person who has NNRTI resistance, that if there's some background resistance in addition to K103N, that cabotegravir may not be enough. And so I would either, it depends on the person. If, if you really, if that makes and breaks their, their ability to take ART, then I might do a proviral genotype. They've not been validated in this setting, but I'd be looking for resistance. But let me see what others think.
2: I agree with you. Um, I think your points well taken that there, there is not that much cross resistance, but you've got other options, and I've, I'd feel better doing that
0: yeah it's the it's the company you keep with the <laughs> K103 n, and, and I think sometimes in people like this, the records that we have about their prior history and when they were when they developed resistance and the data would make me nervous mm-hmm. so right, right.
1: Mm-hmm. great um. So um, the next case is something that I think happens a lot, and so I um, wanted to bring it up as a point for discussion. So this is a person in his 60s who's got a CD4 count that was very, very low in the, in, uh, the past, CD4 nadir of 50, also treated with a variety of regimens in the 90s. No known drug resistance, unlike the other patient. He's now on dolutegravir, FTC, TAF, and his viral loads just kind of fluctuate. They're never consistently below 20, but they're usually between 55 to 250, um, and he reports 100% adherence. So, um, and I, how many of you have a patient like this in your practice? <laughs> so, yeah, pretty much everyone. <laughs> anyone is Okay, so what do you recommend, and I'm interested to see what you will recommend. Um, do you change his regimen to um, a, a more, um, a boosted PI-containing regimen, half FTC uh, through an system? Do you change his regimen to cabotegravir quivering? Do you add a drug? Do you intensify? Do you add gabapentin? Do you figure out a way to check drug levels? Do you leave them alone, or do you do something else? So let's see what you all think. I think we're all taking notes to see, see what you all do, because uh, th- I would say this is one of the more common fun
2: I think GPT has created the music selection. Program. Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> I-, I thought you would say ask, ask ChatGPT for what to do for this okay. special. <laughs> All right, let's see. Um, no changes. Okay, about 56% say no change. That's the most popular, but then there's a, there's a variety of approaches, and I guess what this illustrates is, this is there's not a simple answer to this. Some people would change, some people would add, and so let's
2: see what our panel would do. Uh, to quote uh, Gabby Johnson and Blazing Saddles, Harumph, um, <laughs> uh, that, that that wouldn't change the regimen. If you go back, this guy's got a CD4 count at the beginning of 50. That means his viral load was probably in the hundreds of thousands at pre-therapy, and he's been suppressed. What, what you can translate that into is that he, relatively speaking, has a large reservoir of latently infected cells that every now and then are going to spit out virus and that virus can be detected. It doesn't usually go up to 250. It's usually between 50 and 100. Um, but that's, that's where they're just going to live. And there's been a lot of studies of intensifying with you name it. In this case, the thought was Deraverine. It doesn't change a thing because all the antiretroviral therapy does that we have it available to us now is stop de novo replication. That is a virus going from one cell and then infecting a new cell and that doesn't happen when your your therapy is effective so this is not going to that that approach is not going to change the reservoir that's spitting out because the virus goes out but it doesn't infect a neighboring cell because the antiretroviral therapy is protecting that neighboring cell so i think we just stay the course i get personally concerned when the viral load does go above 100, because I don't usually see that very much in this setting. If they have a concomitant illness that stimulates their immune system, then you get a transient increase in viremia. You can even get that after a vaccine. But um, assuming it's between 50 and, let's say, 120, I don't think I would do much except move on. Uh,
4: No, I agree. The only thing I was going to to say is uh, I I wasn't actually going to select F, because, yes, I would not change the regimen, but you're gonna to have to spend a lot of time talking to this individual, and that's gonna be the something else that you're gonna to have to do. This this person, frequently, these this, this patients require you to assure them, to explain to them what is happening. And at least my experience with a few of them is that, you know, you frequently say, well, okay, fine, you know, you were 2.30 yesterday, we'll you know, last time we saw you, we'll go ahead and get a, a, a repeat today, of our load, and get a genotype, you know, just to be, and then you do that, and. It's, it, it, whenever I order a genotype, then the viral load <laughs> becomes less than fifty. I don't know what <laughs> happens. But... <Something> happens. <laughs> the, the um,
0: I mean, the fact that it's never undetectable worries me a little bit. That this is persistently elevated, and I showed that data from the uh, military cohort about the higher rates of potentially of uh, non-AIDS events. One thing I always check for, especially on dolutegravir, is the person taking any magnesium or calcium supplements or zinc, any yeah. ca- positive cations at the same time they take their meds because that can reduce the absorption. And I've had that, fix yeah, that, and they got an undetectable. Yep. So I, I think you need to check about that. And then the other issue that comes up, what about their partners? Are they are they undetectable? Are they, and I think for most of the studies, undetectable was less than 200. So I think yeah. we're okay there. Yeah. But I always make sure about drug interactions and. But sometimes, you know, despite the counseling, people just want to try something different and see if they can suppress.
1: Okay. So I have an approach similar to what, what has been outlined. What I do is essentially I assess adherence, I'll call the pharmacy, make sure that they're picking up their meds. I'll consider drug interactions. I think the point that was just made about multivalent cations is a really important one. Dietary calcium is okay, but exogenous calcium, you get much more of that multivalent cation when you take it as a supplement. That's what uh, interferes with the integrase inhibitor um, uh, absorption. Sometimes intercurrent illness, but that should be transient. It shouldn't be this kind of sustained, persistent viremia. I would say malabsorption, we often invoke it, but I've never. it's rare, rarely the cause of this. And in really unusual circumstances, I'll try to figure out a research lab that can do resistance testing and drug levels, but I would say this is what I, I almost never do that. Um, If, at the end of the day, I cannot find any other cause, then I do think what um, has been said is is the case that this may be due to release of virions from the reservoir rather than ongoing replication. And and this was suggested by a study that John Mellers and others published a few years ago looking at eight such individuals who had long-term ART, had low-level viremia. They called it um, essentially non-suppressible viremia. They had var loads that you can see there that were usually above 200, uh, below 200, as you said, and had a median nadir that was fairly low, around 200. Uh, there was no um, evidence of drug resistance. They actually checked drug levels, and they were in the therapeutic range. But what they did, and I thought this was the novel part, is they looked at the integration site, and I'm going to show you an illustration in a second. But when they looked at the integration sites, the RNA was identical. Um, that is, um, it, the integration sites were, were there was not an evolution of integration sites. And when you see the picture on the next slide, it will be a little clearer. But that suggests that these viruses that are in the plasma are clonal, they're coming from an infected clone, and that they're just spitting out that virus, as Dr. Sack said, but not evolving resistance. And there was no resistance that evolved over time. So the implication is the changing or intensifying ART wouldn't, wouldn't be effective. So this is, I think, the picture that shows that if you have viral replication, then what happens is your virus um, integrates itself into different parts of the genome, and then you'll get evolution of those integration sites. That's if there's productive cycles of replication, but what they found was not that. They found the same integration site, and that indicates that there's essentially just a clone that's spitting out virus. Now, this is a small study, and there will be a variety of different instances, so as as Dr. Del Rio said, you have to go through talking to the patient, making sure there's not something else. But I think in some instances, this is gonna be going to be the answer. Um, I'm going to try to do one more ARV case, and then I'd like to do one non-ARV case, and then if there's time, we'll do a bonus case, but there may not be. So one more ARV case, and then one, I would say, hot topic that's, that's in the news. So let's do one more ARV case. So this is a 34-year-old um, man who has sex with men who is, is getting TDF FTC for prep? You're going to hear more about prep this afternoon. He intermittently misses doses, and he presents with fever and a sore throat. And unfortunately, his HIV RNA is a, is a million. It had been negative before, and his antigen antibody is positive. So he has acquired HIV. So you're going to send a, a genotype. But while you're waiting for that genotype, what regimen would you start? Would you start TAF FTC bictegravir? Would you use a boosted PI, boosted durinavir plus TDF-FTC? Would you, he's on TDF-FTC. Would you use boosted durinavir plus dolutegravir? Or would you use a multidrug regimen, TAP-FTC, boosted durinavir, and dolutegravir? Let's, let's see what you all think. Did you, uh, Dr. that I understand there's a successor to CHAT-GPT. There's some, some new one that I can't even remember, the, uh, so we'll see if they can have a better music selection. <laughs> okay, so person acquiring HIV on TDF-FTC, it looks like three-quarters of you would be okay with TAF ftc Some of you want a multi-drug, you know, three-class regimen. So, what does our panel think? And, and you can always, we have Dr. Scott had Dr. Scott in that is but what, what do you all think?
0: Nobody's. I can, um, Go ahead. I just talked so I'm going to be quiet. But
4: I... I mean, I, I think you want to know when you said he miss he misses doses exactly. What, what does it mean? And how? What is he missing? What, did he get infected uh, with with you know, decent levels of drugs or he did not. Most of those individuals, when they get infected like this, don't have resistance to, to, uh, to the FTC. And I feel, therefore, you know, comfortable with, with, with the panel, what the, what the audience is suggesting, of, of going with the Tegavir TAF FTC. Uh, I, I worry that his viral load is really, really high. And you uh, obviously wanted to get a genotype on him, but I think putting him in a multi-drug regimen will make him even miss more doses at this point in time.
3: (laughs) I think our hesitancy to answer is because of what everybody just said, we worry about this kind of patient, but we don't know the exact reason why he failed and got infected. Um, The data that are available would suggest that TAF, FTC, and Victegravir would do fine at least initially and you have some time because you're going to get him initially suppressed on that regimen anyway to see what your drug resistance tests show and you can modify you know in in a few days if you need to it doesn't take that long to get them back anymore but uh, i think that what everybody's a little hesitant about is that viral load of a million copies and sure. do we need to do something more aggressive in that in the setting of such a high viral load. But
2: so, thinking back to the biology again, uh, this guy became infected probably at a time when either his TDF FTC levels were non existent or they were low level. Uh, so, the concern is if they were low level, could that replication in the face of low level resistance induce, uh, the low level replication induce resistance? It's possible. We don't see that much resistance in people that get. Infected, And if you do, maybe it's a FTC or 184V, and that, as we've heard already, that doesn't seem to tremendously affect uh, the effectiveness of the regimens, and you're going to know, as Connie said, very quickly. So I think any of these could work, but I go back to Carlos's point that the person isn't a great pill taker, so I don't want to necessarily give him a boosted agent simply because it might be less tolerable and I'd go to something simple, and I'd, I'd go with A with the rest of the crowd.
0: Yeah, the only other thing, though, that I would say is, is to take a really careful history of, like, sometimes when people start having symptoms, they start taking their pills. Yeah. And like, yeah. has he been taking it every day now for the last two weeks um, or, or not? So that, that would be important, but I agree that it's rare to see resistance in seroconversion.
1: Yeah, these are all good points, and um, I deliberately kind of stressed the, the uh, system in terms of giving a high viral load. It turned out that he had not been taking um, the drug, and, and, but that those are all the key questions. As has been said, drug resistance in people taking oral PrEP is, is fairly uncommon. Sometimes it will occur if someone has unrecognized acute HIV. That's becoming a little less common, as we often will be checking RNAs in people we're starting PrEP on if they have had recent exposures or in people who have intermittent adherence. The most common resistance mutation, as was said, is M184V, and it's somewhat uncommon to have K65R. One thing that this case does not illustrate, but I want to just briefly mention, I won't go through this in detail because you are going to hear much more about this later today, is if you have someone who's now getting injectable cabotegravir, um, most of the time that prevents HIV, but there are some instances where there have been breakthroughs, you'll hear more about it, and when there is breakthrough, there have been reports of integrase resistance uh, occurring, and I won't belabor that here because of time, but keep an eye on that for this afternoon. So the ISUSA essentially endorsed um, these as the main options um, for people who are acquiring HIV on oral, um, tenofir-based prep, buttegravir FTC-TAP, or dog plus um, tenofir XTC. If you have someone who has had capotegravir, though, that's when you're going to want to reach for that, that um, protease inhibitor, and then adjust um, your regimen once your genotype comes back. So there is going to be time for questions, but I'm going to round this out with um, kind of a pair of cases that are not ARV-related, but I think are important. We saw a number of these in the last few years. So this is a 40-year-old man. I'm going to give you the diagnosis here, it's the, the, what to do about it. Um, so a 40-year-old man with well-controlled HIV. He's on dolutegravir 3-TC. He's coming with abdominal uh, cramping and diarrhea. Severe diarrhea, one, one, or two, uh, bowel, one to three bowel movements every hour. He's got some chills. His temperature is 100.7. He's traveled to Cape Cod. He's been at cookouts. He has three new male sexual partners uh, with uh, oral anal stimulation. You do a stool culture, and he has Shigella, OK? And he has Shigella uh, sanii. And so would you treat this patient? Let's see what you think. A man with Shigella, uh, would you treat yes, no, only if he doesn't improve? So 60% yes, 40, 35% no, or sorry, only if he doesn't prove uh, 35% and no, 8%. I'm going to present a companion case in a moment, but let's see briefly what our panel thinks, and I'm going to give you another scenario with the same diagnosis in a second, but would you, would you treat? Or if you wouldn't treat, what, what information would help you about that?
4: You know, he has he has a suppressed viral load. You didn't give us a, a CD4 count. At least I don't recall seeing a CD4 count. Yeah, let's assume it's high. Yeah, but, that's a good point. You know, I didn't put that. But this better. is somebody who theoretically is not immunosuppressed, and uh, and and therefore uh, uh, somebody that not you may not necessarily treat uh, because he's not immunosuppressed. And again, the treatment gets very complicated, and you're probably going to talk about this later because as we see a lot of quinolone use in this kind of situations, frequently those patients have. Shigellas, which are have inducible for genes, and and therefore you need to really think what you're going to treat this person with. And you're talking many times about, you know, intravenous therapy and putting him in the hospital. If he's not sick enough for that, you may want to observe him and not treat him. So I I would be, I want to get a little more information what he looks like. But if he just has abdominal pain and, and temperature, I may wait before actually treating him.
0: Yeah, I mean, what, and, oh, go ahead. Go ahead no. I mean, the, these cases too of multiple multiple drug resistant shigella. We just we just had one and. It, and that r- information doesn't come back in any kind of meaningful time because we're diagnosing these by PCR and then reflexing to culture. Um, so I, I w- it, it really needs to be based on the clinical uh, appearance: are they dehydrated, and you know how they're doing. But empiric yeah. treatment is not so easy not anymore. Not so easy
2: anymore. You right. Yeah. You're going to you be
4: put him in the hospital yeah. then because he's sick. Then you're going to start him on, you know, on uh, carbapenem or something else
2: what type of mayonnaise was it (laughs) (laughs) i think that might matter (laughs) just curious so
1: these used to be simpler okay life used to be simpler but these most of the time in the past we would we would treat shigella um but things have gotten complicated um so let me do one more case and then i'll summarize where we are with shigella and we're not in a totally clear place so this person did have resistance testing we we um, then and even now goes um, you know, default to culture. So he has a Shigella that's ampicillin-resistant. They don't give an interpretation for Azithra, but it's greater than 256, it, it won't work. Cipro is resistant and trimethoprim sulfa is resistant. What I didn't show you here is he turned out to have septra susceptible and we were able to get suffixine, but by the time this all came back, he, he, was, he was better. He had actually resolved the Shigella. So let me... Um, present one other case and then I'll summarize where we are with Shigella. Again, not a very clear place. So this now is a person on PrEP with diarrhea, four days of watery diarrhea. He has no blood in his stools. He's got no fever. He's got no chills. He's he's less sick. And um, he too has Shigella. And this time you do have resistance testing back. And and maybe just in the interest of time, I will, well, let's see what you all think. But I'll stress here that he has a no interpretation for cipro. For those of you who've seen Shigella, has this come back, uh, where they give kind of an intermediate level? It's hard, hard to see. Um, maybe we'll. So this person has a resistant to ampicillin Shigella, a susceptible to trimethoprim, and he has this no interpretation because he's got a uh, intermediate MIC well, for cipro. Well,
2: and again, you know, uh,
4: what that means, there's no CLSI uh, exactly. uh, uh, recommendations here. Basically, in CLSI-based says sensitive or resistance based on clinical data. So there's no data to support. So you just have to go with the MIC and say, is this MIC going to be sufficient? And that's what makes it complicated. But you don't have CLSI data, and that's what the problem
1: is. Okay. So with that in your minds, uh, would you give this person Cipro? Would you give him or sulfa? Would you not treat, or would you admit him or, or find a way to give him F- iv ceftriaxone?
2: <laughs> no,
1: Not I, I yeah. So, um, let, this is, I think, the point that I wanted to really drive home. So, just a few weeks ago, the CDC put out this health advisory. You, what you're looking at in the graphic is the last few years. And over the last few years, um, there's been a really rapid rise, it's not the majority of Shigella, but 5% of Shigella are now what they call XDR, extensively drug resistant, which means they're resistant to all our available drugs, azithro, ampicillin, cipro, ceftroxone, and trimethyrum sulfa. This is mostly seen in MSM, people experiencing homelessness, international travels, travelers, and people with HIV. The CDC has no current treatment recommendations. They say that explicitly. In the UK, where they've also seen this, they use a... Extended spectrum um, penicillin called pimefloxacin, and phosphomycin. So they've used that um, in the UK, but we don't have that um, beta, uh, beta-lactam here. And in very, very, very sick people, they've used IV carbapenem and colistin if they're if they're hospitalized. So this is the extreme. This is XDR Shigella. But I will say even more than that, I've seen a number of these other cases of. Shigella that tests susceptible to Cipro, but with this intermediate MIC of 0.12. The CDC put out an advisory about this about five years ago. But these uh, intermediate Cipro Shigellas do harbor resistance genes, and it's essentially unclear whether Cipro will work. Um, And what the CDC essentially has come down to is if you have someone who's ill, who's immunosuppressed, or if you're in an outbreak situation, that's, that's where you should be thinking. And again, this is different than it used to be before this resistance became an uh, an issue. I think um, if I were to treat, I would have used trimethoprim sulfa like I think half of you would have. So I'm going to wrap it up there. I want to thank you all. um, Thank our panelists, first of all, for their outstanding discussion. And I want to thank you all for your attention. I'm going to look to our moderator to see where we are. Oh, oh, terrific, okay. Thank you very much. So, um, um, so let's start with the first question: what causes elite controllers to to lose control, and what inflammatory markers go up first? Have any of you had an elite controller that you want to reflect on? so why do some people lose elite control and is there an inflammatory marker that, that really presages that I, I think we probably don't know fully the answer as to why this happens. I will say that in some I was going to say immune senescence. We just get old <laughs> and eventually <laughs> we lose control to a
4: lot of things. So I, I there
1: are some sense. data. Actually, Matthias Lichterfeld at Mass General and Brigham um, did a study where he looked at elite controllers and he looked at their transcriptional profiles. And he found that some uh, people who are elite controllers have a very quiescent transcriptional profile, and those are the ones who had normal CRPs, very low CRPs. He found another group of elite controllers that had a more active gene profile, and those CRPs were were high, and and their CD4 to CD8 ratios were low, as as Dr. Sachs said. Numbers are small, so not enough to to make a firm conclusion, but I, and we haven't, you know, we don't have a guideline that says to check a CRP. but I think probably some of it is an immune escape, some of it is evolution of um, um, escape to CD8 cells, and some of it is just things we don't get yep. now. So, um, let me switch up and go beyond a control. Can someone tell me about how much time I have? Because these are great questions. I want to get to as many as I can. Okay. What um, on a leak controller? Can I ask the panel what they do? Um, if you have a, someone who you're going to give cabotegravir/raltegravir to, say they, they really are adherence challenged and, and they want a injectable, but they have a history of K103N, and, and let's say you do a proviral genotype, and they don't have um, any raltegravir resistance. If you're going to give that person cabotegravir/raltegravir, would you give it every one month, every two months? How how would you approach that decision? Obviously, it's it's approved for for every two months, but it first came into common usage usages every one month. Any thoughts on um, frequency of dosing of cabotegravir? I
2: mean, this is judgment. There's no—this is just using your brain, knowing what you know about the drug levels and the concern that in the, towards the end of the second month um, that the levels in certain people start to drop. And so you're dealing with a little bit of a weakness in the regimen, at least theoretically, So I would lean towards monthly, although that's real expensive. It's a lot more difficult to do. I'd really try to find something else. But in the case of harm reduction, if you've got somebody who can't take a pill, any kind of oral regimen, um, and we don't have yet uh, a lenacapivir option without pills um, that we could use, um, I think you just negotiate, but I'm really not comfortable with using it in that setting, personally. I mean, I you
4: know, again, we have no data, right? And and in, in with the presence of an M184, as you said before, you even feel uncomfortable uh, going there. But you know, if that's what's going to try to suppress your patient, try it. But if, it, if I did that, I would like to go to to monthly, even though you know, patient may not show up every four
0: yeah, in the um, Ward 86 experience that I shared, the poster from, they did it every four weeks, I think, out of yeah. abundance of caution, although, you know, we have to remember that every eight week dose is more drug, <laughs> just yeah. lasts yeah. longer, um, so I don't know if we're treating ourselves there, but I think sometimes just to have really good follow-up, and then once they're suppressed, you could switch to every eight weeks.
1: Terrific. I think what I'm going to do is we'll wind down for now. I'm going to stay up here, and during the break, we'll uh, happy to take other questions. But thank you again for um, great um, contributions, and thank our panel. And we'll look forward to talking at lunch.